Listening to After the Encore, the music podcast that explores what happens after the music fades, what happens after the encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and in this industry, success is never a sure thing. Even if you tick all the boxes for what you need to do to be successful, you put the right pieces in place, you're on a major label, sometimes it just doesn't happen. But despite the adversity and the setbacks, you still can find success. And you can find out what music means to you and what does success look like. On today's episode, I speak to Kevin Yee, who was in a boy band group called Youth Asylum in the late 90s and 2000, best known for their hit Jasmine, which the music video was on the Disney Channel, and they were getting a lot of airplay on Radio Disney, but that was the peak and right before the fall of Youth Asylum. They recorded a full-length album, and it was never released. So what happened? There was a lot that went into that. Kevin was in high school when all of this went down, and he's gone on to have an amazing career on Broadway, in comedy. He's doing a lot of great things. So Youth Asylum was really a blip on his radar, but it was one that still lingers with him in a lot of ways today. So we're going to dig into that. So stick around for this next episode and after the encore, volume three, Dirty Pop. Don't you love her sweet smoke complexion? Smooth skin, she to me lives as a legend. I love the way she licks her lips and moves her hips. Baby got flash, wanna do backflips. When I'm feeling down, she listens, pays attention. Fills my heart with warmth and affection. Her smile changes my whole world. Yo, Jasmine, don't you know you're my favorite girl? You're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I'm here with Kevin Yee. And Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show today. How are you doing? I'm good. You know, there's a pandemic and the world is on fire, (laughs) but I'm doing great. I'm just sitting in my closet doing a podcast. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What more more could you want? Well, I want to go ahead. There's a lot of really great stuff to tackle in this episode, and you've had such a fantastic career. But I do want to start with a question I ask everybody that comes on, and that is, what does music mean to you? I mean, music is um, a connective tissue between humans. Mm. And I've, mm. and as we talk more, we'll talk, you know, I've done many different things in my career, um, but I've always been a performer of some sort. And so as I've gotten older, because I have such a weird array of things from theater to writing music to being in this boy band, et cetera, to now just acting on TV and writing TV, I have realized when I think about it, like the main thing is storytelling and connecting with humans. And so music really to me was that and is that and continues to be that. And, you know, it's helps you through tough times. I mean... I feel like I have a different relationship with music now, though. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I've, you know, went through the inner workings and I 
And so it's not as magical as it used to be. But when I was growing up, I really used it as kind of like an escape. Sure. And so like as I still write music to some some degree, um, it I incorporate it in my work. It's still like that is my intention on the other side of the microphone is I want to bring that escape, bring that human connection and that joy to whoever's listening. Sure. No, I absolutely love that. And there's so there's so much power in what you said too, because it is the recognition, right, of what it meant to you and the recognition of how you have kind of had this relationship, this varying relationship with music throughout the years. And it's taken on many different forms and different substances, and you've been able to use it in a variety of ways. And now you're, you've almost come full circle in the sense that you want to be able to replicate that magic for others and be able to bring that through point in and really continue to inspire other people and make the world better by continuing this process and using it as yet another tool in your arsenal. I absolutely love that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think art, well, I think just in general, art is so important. And especially right now, the world is so political. And I feel like artists are really being attacked right now as like, well, well, why don't you just shut up and sing? Like, why don't you just shut up and act? But the truth is like art is, is so essential to society. We are mirrors. We hold up mirrors. We reflect society. We show society what it is, we show society where we we're going, and um, and that reflects in music. That reflects in every artist. Like art is political, and so right. and art does affect people. And so to dismiss artists in the way that society really is, parts of society really are right now, is, I mean, those people then go home and they watch Netflix. You know, like right. they go, they turn on yeah. the radio and then they, they'll complain about artists, but then it they don't realize how essential it is to humanity and to even their own personal lives. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, I think it's important. And I think about that every time now more than ever, as I'm getting older and as I, you know, have had such a diverse career, like I think about why I'm writing something. If I'm writing something, it has to have a meaning and it has to be for something and it has to have you know, like bring joy, even if it's just um, a different perspective, but I don't want to make frivolous art. Um, but I also think frivolous art is fun too. <laughs> so sure. like, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's really good though, too, because, you know, to your point, art is always, you know, you like, hmm, how, what's the best way to say this is that the best art, mm, mm, Art subjective. So perhaps maybe this is the best way to say it is that you are always saying something when you are creating art. Perhaps what you're saying and what your intent is, is this picture of an orange is just a picture of an orange. Perhaps that is all you're saying. But you, the artist, the creator, you are trying to say something with what you are writing or putting out. And for folks to say, I really would just like you to get up on stage and dance so I don't have to think about things. Why can't we just stop talking about this? Why can't, why, why can't you just be satisfied? You, 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 the artist, you, the person, you, whoever, right? And it's like, right, but then you get in your car and you, you're listening to the music and the music you're listening to is people saying something about the world in which they live in and their perspective. So, I mean, it's, it's all coming back and it's all informing each other and we're all learning and growing. And so for folks to try and shut out 
that which is so essential to our growth and development as a human society is, in my opinion, very detrimental to the world being able to continue to grow and thrive. So I love your point about, you know, these, these people are then going and consuming art and not cognizant of the fact that they are benefiting from that which they're trying to suppress. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. And I think sometimes artists maybe don't even realize what they're doing. Like they don't even realize, like you could, you could argue a lot of pop music is like generic and pointless. Right. But I think that they're crafting something that they believe is beautiful, whether or not it's like political, but then part of it is political too. You know what I mean? Just like (laughs) human expression. And um, so, so yeah, I feel like every artist is important and every art form is important right now more than ever. And music is one of those things that does connect people. You see people, you know, and with the quarantines, they're like singing on the balconies to each other. Like that's how they're lifting each other up. You see like these, you know, in Belarus right now and like Lebanon and like these people are taking to the streets, they're chanting, they're speaking poetry. They're, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's part of our society and our lifeline and it does get dismissed so easily. So I think it's, it's easy to be like, well, music is just music. Right. But I think, right time and age has shown me that like maybe that's what I thought it was when I was younger but I didn't I was inadvertently saying something and didn't realize it and now that I'm older I'm like wow like everything that I write is important everything that I say you know as an artist so yeah and you know it's it's something too. I I I do not like to think about getting old, but the reality is is accurate. So we're here in our thirties, you know, and it's just like oh god. But anyways, um, I digress. But I, I I am aware of the fact, and and having two two kids on my end is made me extra aware of it. And so when I do um, this. my version of art, creating these podcasts and putting them out and trying to make the world just a little bit better. I'm always thinking about the fact that, you know, not to get morbid, but it's like this, this one I do could be the last one. And it could be, I, I do. And I, I'm getting to a point here is that I want my legacy to be a, a, a almost audio living journal of my interactions and my visible growth and evolution of a person of, of self that my kids can listen to at any point in time in their future and feel that connection and feel that growth and, and be able for a piece of me to live on with them that they can refer back to. And so I am always diligent about like, let me make sure that I get this next one out because this could be the last one I ever do. And that inspires me to really think constructively and critically, as you said, about writing and what am I writing? Am I writing for a purpose? Am I putting this out there? Am I making sure it has merit? That's the approach that I'm taking to these types of interviews and recordings because it is, it has to mean something for me, you know, and I think that's the core of being an artist is, is I want to make sure that this means something and is, is worthy of, of adding value to the world, you know? Yeah, we had like, so when we get down the conversation, I was, (laughs) I'm a Broadway actor too and, and did shows for like years. Like I did like Mary Poppins for three years, not three years straight, but three, I went back and forth. Mamma Mia for three years straight. Wicked for three years straight. That's eight shows a week 
for weeks on ends and people always like fantasize about theater but the truth is like there is no christmas vacation there is no you do it every week of the year and if you until you leave that job so like i think mamma mia i used to hold like count because that was my first show and i counted how many shows and i almost got to a thousand shows like straight and it's the same show every night. It doesn't ever, in fact, like to the, there's numbers on the stage where you have to stand on that number every night. And then if you leave the show, somebody else that take comes in, it's not really artistic. Like that, somebody else is going to step on that number that you are, you were standing right. on. But my point is that like, we used to say when we got really tired, and this is kind of the theory on theater is that like, theater is usually a gift. Like the tickets are usually bought because it's somebody's birthday or it's like somebody's wedding anniversary or something. So it's an experience. So even if it's my thousandth show and I'm broken and tired and my body's (laughs) done and I have no voice, like it's a special, it's the first time for someone else. So for your podcast, it's like you, yeah, you may be tired or whatever, but then it's like somebody is listening to this in their car after having a bad day and they just want to like relax and think about like the world or like have a different perspective or think about pop music or whatever it is. It's like, so, so it is weird to say like art is important because I feel like the world is going in a different direction, but I, I always want to like remind people when I talk about my own story is like art really is important. And we, we think of it as flippant, you know, there's like, viral instant stars every five seconds there's some new thing like there's such mass production of art right now but it's still important you know it's it's not an easy skill to have people you know work for years to like even probably to talk like on a podcast I don't know like what your journey was but like I used to not really be able to do interviews even because I was so used to having lines and being told what to say and so like even like talking about myself was not organic and so like this has taken me a long time to even do pot and now i do podcasts a lot actually no one's asked me in a while (laughs) (laughs) well i'm happy to to start that back up again there so there we go but but i'm glad yeah i'm glad you brought up the stage though because i I do want to talk about your early life here in this segment and so you're you're from vancouver uh, correct yes so you are canadian you're currently living in in california yes um and your address is no, I'm totally <laughs> yeah. Um, and, <laughs> um, so I you're mean, you'll never find you're, it, yeah, right. <laughs> but you're you're from Vancouver and growing up. So your first uh, stage production was that The King and I. Yeah, I'm remembering correctly. Okay, yeah. So how do you I know wanted... all this? <laughs> What's up? How do you know all this? <laughs> uh, I I you know I do my research. I do my research. Okay, but, cool. Yeah, but I I want to know. So 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 being on stage as a young kid and getting to be a part of the production, the King and I, I want you to walk me through what your journey was like getting to that point. And then what was your experience being on stage, being part of the theater magic, right? Quote unquote, for um, the very first time. Hmm. Well, I mean, it was a long time ago, so (laughs) I don't know how great I'm going to recount it, but um I actually had already been a performer at that point. I My mom put me in like ballet classes when I was really young. I was like four or five. And then, sure. yeah, The King and I, I think, was like when I was six or seven. 
and it came about because the king and I was a it was a touring production and what they would do is like when they got to a city they would hire local kids because they needed to fill the kind of stage with kids but they didn't want to travel with all the kids which made sense um, yeah because that would be terrible um right <laughs> and they weren't like long stays like i think i did it for a couple weeks or like a month or something um but yeah they came they auditioned and the audition was pretty simple it was like can you bow to the king like can you like <laughs> I don't know, twirl. I mean, it wasn't... And All the simple destruction or instructions, yeah. It was very simple. And then also I would say, like, you know, it's an Asian show, so they're going to pick the Asian people, even though the leads were all white and Asian face. But, like, they yeah. they definitely picked, I think, basically all of the Asian kids and then some dark-haired... There weren't many of us to choose from, so it was, like... Um, not to say yeah. that I wasn't talented and didn't deserve it, but um, of course, of course. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but then yeah, then we rehearsed very for a very short amount of time. Um, we did a rehearsal with the cast, and then we were off and running for whatever two or three weeks. Um, and I don't remember a lot. Yeah, I'd already been at, on stage at that point, so. But I do remember watching, so The King was played by Rudolf Nureyev, who's a very famous ballet dancer, Russian. Right. And he has like, he had all the Asian face, the yellow face on. But um, I remember he watching him in his death scene. Spoiler, if you've not seen The King and I. <laughs> <laughs> Which not everyone has, so spoiler. Um, but The King and I, he dies at the end and there's a big death scene. It's very dramatic. And I remember, wa- I remember like, we weren't supposed to watch it. No one's supposed to notice except like, the, there's a white woman that saves Bangkok. That's the yes. point of the musical. <laughs> um, right, yes, yes. So she's supposed to notice him dying, but the rest of us on stage, like all of the king's servants and children, there's like, you know, 20 or 30 of us, we're not supposed to notice. But I remember like watching him out of the corner of my eye and being like, wow, this is like, he's really dramatic and like feeling it. And I was like, wow, he's really emoting to the audience. And so, yeah, I mean, it was like a cool experience and... um yeah, it was one of my first jobs, or it was my first job, and when I was younger, because I was kind of the only person that was really Asian in Vancouver that was doing that, I, I got a lot of jobs as a kid, because <laughs> there wasn't a lot of people doing it, so, um, so yeah, but I did like it as a kid. It was really... My career is because of me. My mother's not a not a show mom at all. She's not show business at all. Like she just saw that I had a lot of energy, and she was like, "Let's put this kid into like dance classes, and like let's sure. let's get this kid auditioning, and like, right. um, and and so it really was my passion. And also, like you know, going back to music, like I used to like love pop singers, and I used to be more into that kind of world when I was younger. So like. She could tell because she caught me several times like lip syncing to Celine Dion in my <laughs> bedroom and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So what was your relationship like? You talked about your your mom and just kind of putting you in ballet classes and dance classes and getting you auditioning. What is your relationship like with your parents, uh, both when you were young and then also how has that changed or has it changed um, throughout the years? Yeah, well, my mom um, and dad are divorced, and I am a, I am estranged from my father, so I've not talked to him in like twenty years. Um, that did have a lot to do with um, me being a very 
I like to say free child. I was a very free child, but one could that. use that as like maybe flamboyant or whatever, however you would describe that. But I remember like they had arguments about putting me in ballet class for sure. Cause like my dad did not want me right. in ballet classes and my mom was like, whatever. Um, my mom was very strict for a certain amount of time. I think she was just unhappy in the marriage. And then when they split up, like she became a very different person. She's a very like, hippie type like ethereal person now and she she has her opinions but you know she's very um kind and like she works hard and etc etc and my dad kind of went down the other route where he was like really angry about the divorce because you know with the asian background like um i think he just got married and was like this is what it's supposed to be whether you're miserable or not you just stay together and you get married and that's it and you don't divorce like you just don't divorce and so when my mom wanted that um it really made him a very bitter angry person and i he really put me in the middle between me and my mom and made me choose and so i chose my mom and like and then other things (laughs) other things (laughs) happened but then yeah it's been like 20 years um so my mom's relationship with me, like I said, is she's not a show mom at all. So she doesn't understand Hollywood at all. And it really bothers me sometimes because she loves to give me advice. But I'm like, you don't. she's like, she's like, I just saw that CSI and there was an Asian guy on that CSI. Like, why don't you just call them and ask for that job? And I'm like, that's not how Hollywood works. You don't just call people. You know, and like... You're like, oh, you know what? I didn't think about calling the one person that does CSI that's in my phone book. No worries. Let me give him a call real quick. Oh, my God. I said phone book. It's a contact list. Oh, God. <laughs> I think I'm 65. This, every year they give me a phone book, and I'm like, who is in this phone book? I'm not in this phone book because I have a cell phone. <laughs> like, I have no landline. But um, It's for warding off people. That's all. You just pick it up and self-defense. That's all. Well, there's a theory that like junk mail is actually to help the postal service. (laughs) Somebody said that was like they actually like have this deal because it actually pays the postal service to continue to. Anyways, that's a that's a dark subject right now. I actually mailed something and I was like, is this ever going to get there? (laughs) Right. Oh, my God. Yeah, seriously. Oh, but let's, I want to, I want to talk through some of those early jobs. I have to say in my research, it uh, blew me away. I did not realize this, that you were part of uh, Lamb Chops Play Along. What? I, I, I need to ask about that because I watched that show religiously as a, as a young child. So I know I had to have seen you on there. So what, talk me through, um, well, I, I say I know, I have no clue, but my guess is I probably did. Um, but what, what? that's probably just like a blip in your radar, but I'm curious about like what, what it was like being on a popular kids TV series. Yeah. Well it actually, so I was on one season and what happened was um, we only filmed in like, I would say like two weeks and it was actually here in Los Angeles and we just, I was just in the musical numbers. So we just filmed a bunch of musical numbers and then she spread it out over the, season the season I got gotcha. and she filmed both she actually filmed in Vancouver my hometown but for some reason she filmed the musical numbers in LA so I had to come to LA to film the musical <laughs> numbers and I don't know what she films in Vancouver if it was just like <laughs> the, the tree or something like that I don't know what it was but um because what maybe ex- yeah no it was definitely we filmed exteriors we only filmed in like a yard 
But um, <laughs> so maybe the interior stuff was like in Vancouver. The show business makes no sense, just as you know. No. I'm sure you know that. Yeah. Um, but uh, but no one recognized me. It wasn't like I got famous off of Lamb Chops Play Along. And right. Like, no. It was just this random thing that I have, and it, technically a season, yeah, a series regular for one season, and then. <laughs> The next year they did come back and they asked me if I could do it, but they asked me how tall I was and I'd gotten too tall because she is actually very short or was very short. And so yeah. like every kid had to be like a certain height. Um, <laughs> and I was already past that, like this, yeah. the second year. I wish that I was around longer, you know. Sure. But it's really funny. Okay. So now we're at the point, um, you know, the next segment we're going to be talking about um your whole experience with youth asylum, but I'd really love to know before we even get into that. Cause that you were what? 15, 15 when you were in youth asylum. Okay. So I know it's with, you know, with maybe other artists that we talked to, there's like the whole like high school part and junior high part, and then they get into their careers and it was a little bit different for you, but what was it like in some of those early days of elementary school? Did you join a choir? Did you do any type of singing in that way or what prepped you for when you eventually got onto youth asylum? Yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, my my life has been very random with the things that I've done. So like even when I was a kid, I was doing musical theater and I was doing um, the occasional film TV as well. Um, I was in like, uh, yeah, I was in like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was the other big theater thing. And it, Donny Osmond was the star and I was in like the choir. <laughs> so it was like this really, ra- I've had all these random things, but like, the main thing was ballet. So like when I was from five to 15, I was a ballet dancer and I trained competitively at this very like, you know, they they would do documentaries about it now, but it's like they were basically communist Chinese, <laughs> like old like teachers that would hit you with a stick. And I did like, it was intense training. It was like eight hours a day. And so um, I, 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 I danced a lot. And then at age like, 13 to 15 like right before the boy band happened I actually was half day program so I would do I would dance for like I would go to school for like three hours in the morning for just kind of like math and science and that kind of stuff and then for the afternoon into the night I would be dancing um so I always was like very much a performance-based type of performer um so that was my high school life I never really had like I never could audition for the musical because I was always dancing and was dance something that you wanted to pursue. Like at one point, was that something you wanted to pursue for your career? I don't know. I don't know if I knew back then. I just knew it was fun, but I will say I always did feel like it didn't feel perfect. Like it never felt like a perfect fit. Um, I physically was, I am shorter Um, for male ballet dancers, they lift the girls. So, um, and my body is just not the look, um, of a ballet dancer. And, uh, and I was definitely burning out. I also felt like I did want to sing. I did like singing. I liked the musical theater. I liked doing like the local productions, but, um, but yeah, dancing is, dance is weird because it's, it's so visual. So, you know, like your face, if you're happy, you smile. (laughs) And if you're sad, you like frown. Um, Right. And I see that now. It's very exaggerated. And when you look at like dancers, 
And I, f- I find this with a lot of my, not that they don't know who they are, but I find like as dancers come to the end of their careers, they have this crisis of not really knowing who they are as an artist because they've been hiding behind these lines, hiding behind, you know, th- these steps. Um, and so, yeah, so... So no, I I never saw myself as a professional dancer, but I don't think I could have said that back then either. Sure. Yeah. No, I totally get that. I I a hundred percent relate to the doesn't quite feel exactly right. And that was something that I did. I mean, I grew up doing theater and then pursued it in college. Um and really had this thought of like, well, I will be involved in theater in some capacity, whether I'm writing or directing or performing, like, oh, this is it. But it, it always felt just 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 not quite exactly there, not quite exactly what I wanted. And so I feel like for me, broadcasting, podcasting, whatever you want to call it, is is exactly it. I feel real comfortable. I feel in my element. I feel just... Um, this joy. And so when we're talking about, I think, I think there's a lot of avenues for folks to feel like what they're doing is a piece of what, um, what is true and authentic for them. But I think we can hone that through trying out different things and different skill sets and different jobs and roles until we kind of find either one thing or a combination of things that really feels holistically right. And so I totally relate with that. So um, we're, we will be right back with more Kevin Yee after this. Welcome back to After the Encore. I'm your host Joe Shaw, and I'm here with Kevin Yee. And now, Kevin, let's 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 dig into the Youth Asylum chapter. And so, one of the things that I want to kind of set the stage for. Um, so, I will I will actually say my one and only understanding experience of Youth Asylum from a consumer was flipping through the Disney Channel one day and then seeing the music video for Jasmine and going, what is this? These guys look my age and they're a boy band and it's a catchy tune. And look at those sweaters and that hair and your hair matched my hair at that exact moment, like lemon colored yellow, just like, like, I thought I was the shit. I thought I was awesome. Looking back, it's like, oh my God, why didn't anybody tell me how bad this was? Um, I was using sun in and I never stopped sunning in and it just kept going and going and going. And so, but anyways, I say all that to say, 
I was super excited to hear more and then I didn't hear anything else and that was that. And so I was curious, whatever happened to Youth Asylum? And then doing some research and I found you and I found a little bit of your story that we're going to dig into. And so I'm excited to talk about about this because I do think, and this is kind of what we're exploring in this whole season, this volume three Dirty Pop, is how really any music genre can be like this, but I think we're specifically looking like at the pop and slash boy band genre of this time period, late nineties, early two thousands, where you have a wide variety of success. You've got some organic success. You've got the Christian subset quote unquote success with plus one. Um, you've got TV shows being made about it like O-Town. And then you have people trying to really replicate lightning in a bottle and manufacture it and put it together to try and make their own version of an InSync or a Backstreet Boys or, or whoever. And sometimes it just doesn't work out for one reason or another because everything in life, even the music scene, is just random a lot of the times. And sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. And sometimes there's other mitigating factors. So, you know, I think this is one of those stories of like, uh, you know, you kind of, on paper, people seem to chick, uh, chick, tick the boxes, check the boxes, whatever, on what one would look for to make up a boy band group based on what was popular at the time. But there's a lot more that goes into that. So just wanted to set the stage for those who may not be familiar. But now you are 15 when you joined. So what was the process like being selected or auditioning for Youth Asylum? And then we'll kind of take it piece by piece. Yeah, um, well, I, I got a phone call. I I mean, this has never happened again in my career, but like I got Hollywood called me. I was in Vancouver, Canada, and the, it was a weird connection where it was literally like my singing teacher was teaching somebody who was supposed to be in the band, but didn't end up being in the band and um, who and that that kid was the manager's girlfriend's son <laughs> or no girlfriend's. <laughs> nephew or something like that and because she was Canadian or something weird and so they asked my um, singing teacher if they if she knew anybody specifically that was Asian because they were trying to make it a multicultural boy band and they were having a hard time finding a kid a boy who could sing who was Asian and my singing teacher was like I know someone and so gave them my number and so I was just sitting at home one day and I got a call and it was like hi we're from this recording company and uh could you sing for us over the phone and so I sang for them the only and I will say like um Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On was the hit (laughs) of that time (laughs) it was like 97 I think or 96 97 and um and so that's what I sang as a fifteen year old boy to a record label. I was like, near, far, wherever you are. And then um they were like, Oh, that sounds good. So um do you can you send us a picture? We didn't have you know, we had email back then, but we didn't have, you know, what we had. Attach now. large files and, yeah. yeah. So then I FedExed like I think a Xerox copy of my like, you know, <laughs> my school picture or something. Cause I no, I had headshots back then. It must have been my headshot. Um and then they were like, Great, you look normal, you look you sound great over the phone. Can you come out tomorrow to LA? to to audition in the studio and they kind of like now in retrospect a lot of what happened is shitty and I don't know if like how much you've researched into the story but like 
because I've been very open about it in other forums, but like it was a really yeah. shitty experience. But that was one of the first things is they were like, "Can you come out tomorrow?" But you have to pay for it. Like you have to pay for uh, the you know, the yeah, airplane ticket. Flag. Yeah. So like me and my mom. I begged my mom and you know, my mom doesn't know anything about show business. So she's like, sure, that makes sense. And she like, we bought like last minute tickets to LA and um, for the next morning and got here. And then, yeah, they brought me into a studio. I sang the other, at that point there were only five members um, and there was only going to be five members, I believe. And so I was in the room with all of the other four members and we sang together and it was terrible. They were like, sing one by one. And we were like, I was like, near, far, (laughs) wherever you are. And then they put on like something like Usher or some like some music and they were like, dance. And then so everyone was like. In a, in a music studio and um just like free form dance yeah it was terrible and you know i back then i was only a ballet dancer so i can't even remember what i did i probably tried to do a pirouette or something stupid but <laughs> um and then yeah from then on i think it was like three or four months of them like really deciding who and and i actually had to come back and they because they wanted to like fix my style because I wasn't cool enough. So that's when they bleached my hair. They had this idea because Jet Li was really big at that time. And oh, he right. had like this blonde hair for some one of the movies. He had like blonde hair. Um, so they bleached my hair and they, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then they found the sixth member. I don't know why. I don't know why. And then they added the sixth member and then. I think yeah but I was I was going back and forth for those three or four months and I was like literally living in the manager's girlfriend's like spare room like without my mom because my mom's like this is normal (laughs) my 15 year old is just he has to go to you know LA and and sit in you know they're not paying for his hotel or his flights but it's it's normal um and uh and so then yeah like I think three or four months later they were like this is the band we have the six members and we signed. So <laughs> you signed what a three year deal at that point. I honestly don't even know. Cause it was like, right. we didn't get that far. It was sure. probably like an al. It was probably album. Yeah. Uh, gotcha. Album like tied to the album. So you've got you, you're the ages of the, of the guys are 15 and 16, right around in there. There's six different members. There is, God, I really hate, I feel, I mean, this, I feel like this doesn't quite age well, but it's, I feel like they, they really worked hard to get, uh, one kid of each ethnicity in the, in the group. Um, and, uh, I feel like there's no real, like easy way to say that it just is what it was. Um, but, and, and then they start work on, so did you go, and this is what's crazy to me, right? Because I, I've, so backing up a bit, um, thinking about, talking with like through the rest of this volume taking it chris kirkpatrick when he was talking about in sync when they were first together you know there's a solid plan in place of like all right you're together you're a group you're rehearsing we're in the studio we're writing we're performing we're gonna go on tour boom 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 outline of things to do talking with nate cole talking about plus one it was similar a little bit differently structured because they were also talking about like can we tour with churches can we do or like this stuff but it was still kind of the same rehearse record tour boom 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 so thinking through those kind of, and that was where people were not asking you to pay, pay your own way to, to rehearsals. Um, but, um, 
your perspective, once they decided this is the group, um, y'all were originally called Young Americans, is that correct? Okay. And then it got changed later to Youth Asylum because as I believe I remember it, Young Americans sounded too juvenile and they wanted it to sound a little bit more mature. I feel like I remember. I could be no, making that up. No, Young but... Americans is a group. <laughs> Oh, it's already a group. That's so that's the what manager. It was. Okay. Yeah, and they were. I think the ma- like whoever thought that they would just pull one over, and then, <laughs> and we got real far. We recorded the whole album, and we kept on saying "Young Americans, Young Americans," and then like we got to the point of like releasing, and they were like, "No, this is already like trademarked. Like this is a full on thing," and so then. We had to, but because we said young Americans so much and we, oh, and then we would say YA baby, like, and so it had to be YA. And so I, it was all like them. It wasn't any of us. They were like youth asylum. And then, and then the album that never came out was supposed to be called We Are Young Americans. So it made sense. That's the way to retroactively cover their ass kind of a thing. Yeah. And not have to re-record stuff. So, but, but... (laughs) But okay, so they've decided they've got the group together. And then what was the structure like for you? Was it like, let's record, let's write, let's tour, boom, boom, boom? Or how did that kind of start to play out for you? Well, we were really not structured, I would say. And we were also, honestly, we were terrible. Like we we weren't really a group. So like with the other two bands that you're talking about, like, it sounds like they kind of had experienced people like um, yeah. kind of like ushering them through. And like for us, like we didn't have anybody that had done this before. And so I think there was a feeling of like, oh, we did it. We just put the band together and it'll be great. And right. like, and but then when we went into the studio, it was like, oh, that guy can't sing. That guy can't sing either. Oh, that guy can't that guy can't keep a pitch like that. Like we like, it really became an issue. And so I would say a lot of the times we didn't rehearse a lot of the times we didn't do anything. I would spend months in LA just sitting. Eventually they, I don't know if they ever paid for flights, but they definitely like rented like um, a two bedroom apartment in, and there's this, there's this famous complex here that a lot of Hollywood like, kids live at because it's like um it's not permanent housing you can like rent month to month it's called the oakwood apartments and so we would just there was a two-bedroom apartment and there was like six of us in there and sometimes a chaperone but sometimes we were alone and i was like a 15 year old and we're like is this legal no it's probably not um but we would spend like months of just like being like well what are we doing now no one's rehearsing no one's telling us to rehearse and um so we started we actually started with one producer and talking about plus one, one, one for all. What is plus that? one? Plus one, yeah. So like yeah. We, our first mu- music person was, uh, um, I don't know a lot about Christian music. I'm not Christian myself, but like was a Christian producer that was supposedly really well known. And we recorded an entire album with this guy and like, like they threw it all out. Wow. <laughs> they threw out wow. 12 songs maybe even more because it just and I I'll agree it didn't sound right it sounded like it sounded too old even for the like 90s it sounded like sure it didn't and so then we went and we started they hired like um Britney Spears's producer and stuff like that and so then we then the sound changed and we got you know Jasmine and it became this poppy thing but 
but the first like year or year at least was recording with that guy over a year, like 12 songs, which is nothing. And then we would, we went on maybe, we went on one mall tour, I think probably the first year. Um, and, but again, we weren't great and we were like, we barely rehearsed. So there were several cringeworthy performances where like the one guy would start the whole song off key and we'd all be like, whoa, I don't know what to do now. <laughs> like, do we, how do we fix him? Do we just put, take the mic away from him? Like, you know, um, so so that was really kind of, there was no structure is kind of the answer to that. Like we didn't have, right. you know, the Orlando complex or anything like that. Right. And so the, um, and that, that year that you're talking about doing the tour, that was, was that in 2000? No. So you're doing that tour? no. So the boy band, we've started like 97, 98, we ended in 2000. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, and I was actually, when I first started, I was 15 and the youngest was 12. And so by the time, yeah. So by the time we got to the music video, which you saw, I was 17 or 18 and the youngest was like 15, 14. So we were kind of like getting older, (laughs) but we started really young, but we wasted three years basically getting to that point because for whatever reason. Yeah. Right. Now I know that there was you you've talked about online and other forums about some of the really problematic uh, decisions and conversations that you had had, which definitely does not age well. But I I would love for you if you're able to or not love I would I would like you to for for the listeners walk us through your perspective in uh, I mean you're uh, you know you're someone that is definitely out and proud right now with who you are and you're living your full authentic life and you're very inspirational and amazing but that was you know not always the case and i think people tried to um keep that locked down so to speak and so what was it like um for them to recognize um that you are that you were that you are gay and 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 their reactions to that it was a little clunkier than I meant it, but I think the sentiment was, was <laughs> No, I know. It's, it's, a, it's a delicate conversation, but not for me because I am very open about it. I think it – because it did affect me to, to this day. And I think that's what people don't understand about what Hollywood does to people and what right. how it can, like, ruin people. Um, when I was in the boy band, before I was in the boy band, like I said, I, I would describe myself as very free, but again, others would say flamboyant and I would, I'll, I'll say I'm, I am flamboyant, you know, um, but I was not out of the closet though. I knew that I was gay. Um, and I had, had come to terms with it, but in a way that I was like, well, you can never say anything. You can never, cause this was also a you know, this still exists, but it was a very different time, like like late nineties. There was no, you know, Ellen hadn't even come out at that point, you know? Um, so, so I didn't identify that, but the band right away and it wasn't, it was more the record label and kind of the management team. They identified something in me that they felt was wrong. And that was that flamboyance, that was that thing. And one might argue that they saw that I didn't act like a star 
boy band member from the 90s. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, there is an air about certain pop stars, and I just didn't have that. I also didn't have that look because, you know, I'm like, you know. (laughs) I mean, what what is an Asian pop star in the 90s, too? Because we had no... There is none. That's true. So we, yeah. what were they comparing it to? Even is the is my my. There was point. no template. Yeah. There was no template, but they identified that in me that I might be gay. So they did pull me into the office, um, and it was very formal. and And I believe that they actually thought they were helping me, and that it was part of their job to do this. But they sat me down and they were like, you know, are you gay? And I was still in denial not to myself, but to other people. Sure. Also because every time, because, and it, you know, again, this is 20 years ago or whatever it was like, um, so I don't fault anyone in a way, (laughs) but the band was really homophobic. Like a lot of the talk was like, and it did come from, they were all good Christians and they came right. from, they went to church and all that stuff, but then they would be like, faggot this and faggot that. And you're not a faggot. Are you a faggot, Kevin? And they would accuse me of that kind of stuff. So, and I had never really been in that situation because I was in ballet and not that like everyone <laughs> in ballet is like right. this like gay flamboyant thing, but it was just a more accepting world even in the right. 90s. And I, and I just want to interject as well from my perspective. So being that same age, right, as you and and these guys that you're around and having grown up in Texas and in that environment where your peers are, quote unquote, good Christian boys going to school, doing all this, but are saying the F word here and there and everywhere and that F word, not the other F word. And right. And but are definitely doing the check on each other like, well, you're not this right. You're not that. And it, it becomes very menacing and very confrontational and very intense and it comes from this perspective where there there is and and talked about this with Nate Cole on the plus one episode that there was this Christian boom in society where it was everywhere culturally like it was quote unquote cool to be Christian there was the WWJD bracelets everywhere you had touched by an angel on TV show you had Christian music exploding as as a subgenre and bleeding over into regular pop music as well in some instances and so it really did um, permeate through society and and that's where you start having these like and then kind of taking it back to politics that like we were talking about for a second at the beginning um, this like evangelical movement with regards to now it's now it's not only like a cultural thing now it's not only um, um, a music thing now it's a political thing and it's and it just and grows and grows and grows and so I put all of that in context to say yes you're absolutely right. It was a very different time, and it was a time in which people were, were, in my experience, growing up in the church, in my experience, being around that, and I will have to say being a part of that to some degree, which I, you know, I've come to grips with and I've worked through, and I'm doing good work to make up for things, but, but being part of that it was really the first time in society where you felt like you could speak up and say like, no, this is the right way to do it. And everybody's listening to me. So I'm going to, I'm going to say, this is the, this is the only way one can live their lives. And you can't shake me from that. And it's not up for discussion. It's black or white kind of a thing. And we have, like you said, it's still that way today to some degree in certain situations. Um, But I think as a whole, we society are realizing that there are 
all types of different ways that people live and grow and thrive and are made. And we're all working together to try and make a beautiful society and that that was wrong behavior. And we need to learn and grow and move on from that because it's not, it's not acceptable. And so I wanted to put a little bit of that into context for people because it is, it is something that is personal to me as well in that uh, we need to do better kind of a thing. But, but, but circling back, so this was the environment that you were in with the people that you were around in the group and it was very homophobic and they were saying these things, they were in that environment. And then what was, what was happening after that? Yeah, I mean, th yeah, so basically they gave me straight lessons. They basically were like, um, we're going to teach you how to be straight. And it's corroborated. I mean, I don't need it to be corroborated, but when I did this Reddit AMA and then one of the members after, well, I'm not friends with anyone, like we, d we don't talk that often, but he reached out and he was like, yeah, they, you know, they paid me more to teach you <laughs> like how to be straight. And, and it was wow. like, so it was like serious, like they would like, you know, they would say, you have to talk this way, like you, and they'd be like, you have to wear this. And then they'd be like, and one of the funniest visuals that I talk about a lot is like, they used to tell me that I walked really gay and they would take me to the grocery store and be like, you have to walk like this down the aisle of the grocery store. And it's like, it was ridiculous because it's like this weird limp thing. It was more, it wasn't a straight walk. It was more like a cool guy walk kind of guess, right. I guess, but, um, but, but it, gets to you because then you don't I went from this very free spirit to right. like second guessing everything and that yeah. still affects me to this day we talk about code switching when as a person of color or as a queer person of like when you are in a certain situation where you don't feel comfortable like if I'm with other straight guys that seem really uh, you know toxically masculine i will hide that flamboyance as much as i can when i'm when i'm in a different situation where i feel like it's better like you know if i'm with around a girl for instance and i feel like i want her to feel comfortable then i'll be really flamboyant because then i'm like no there's nothing sexual going on you know what i mean like right, there's yeah. this code switching that happens and it's still to this day and i realize that i still do it um, because of that time, because I, yeah. and, and actually that time in the boy band changed me because I would say until at least like five years ago, seven years ago, when I started my journey that I'm on now as a comedian as, and as a, as an actor and as a writer for TV, I was still code switching, even on Broadway, like I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what my voice was. I never felt comfortable in my skin because of those three years, because the, because it was like, if you come out of the closet and if you are gay, then you will never be successful in what your dream is. And yeah. my dream was to be a pop star. And it's not necessary. It's not that anymore, but back then it was like, it was devastating because I knew that because of what I was taught that coming out of the closet didn't just mean I could live my authentic life. Coming out of the closet also meant I would never be a pop star. I would never be the person that I was dreaming of being. And, right. and so, and that is true. Like as much as I hate to be like, you know, it was in my mind or something like I came out of the closet and whether it was like me just accepting that and never pursuing it again, or if it was actually the truth that I couldn't be a gay, openly gay pop star, like it just never happened. I never fulfilled that 
part of my dreams um, and never will really. I mean, now I'm like in my 30s, so it's like I'm not going to be, you know, a pop star at this point. Um, and that's right. fine. I'm OK with it because, like I said, I've come to the understanding that no matter what I'm doing, as long as I find the root of it being I'm connecting with an audience, I'm bringing joy, I'm telling a story, then I should be OK with it. And I do feel that I am OK with it. You know, that's good. Um, but it There's, took me this long. Yeah. yeah. There's so much beauty in what you said, though, in that, you know, there's a sadness of that. It, it still affects you to this day because I, I think, you know, that's extremely relatable in that we have these, the, this, this, for lack of a better word, trauma that happens to us in our lives. And, and it's something that we carry around with us and we work through it as best we can and we do what we can to move forward. Um, but sometimes there's only so much that we can do and there's a sadness there, but I think the beauty is when you're talking about how you've been able to learn and grow and recognize um, how you're able to live your full authentic self now and that you're also recognizing when you are being affected by the this trauma and are able to kind of identify because because I think that's that's so key in not just knowing that you have this trauma baggage history, whatever word you want to use to, to describe it. Cause we've all got, we've all got that. It's not just enough to, I, to, to have it and to be affected by it, but to be able to identify it. And sometimes you can't do anything with it once you've identified that it's currently affecting you. You know, it just, it is what it is. And other times you can say, I'm not going to let, I'm choosing to not let this affect me right now. And I'm taking a little bit of that power back for my, for myself, excuse me. And, and that is the, the beauty in, in how we as individuals are able to learn and grow and thrive and, and really be able to bring some good to the world. So thank you so much for sharing that. Cause I know it's, it's, it's not, it's not, um, easy and not pleasant memories. Um, but I do appreciate you, you working through that and, and talking through it with us. But, but I want to, as we're starting to wrap up this segment, I want to know, so we did touch on the fact that the Youth Asylum album, formerly the Young Americans album, was was never released. Was that? I mean, what was what was that something of? You know, we'll get around to it, and we never submitted our final homework report. I mean, what 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 was going? Because that's that's all I can think of when when I hear that it wasn't released. Is like, well, you've done it. You've literally done all of the work but you're just not going to release it. And I know that there's a lot more complexity involved in that than I'm, than I'm making it sound. But what was your experience like finding out the album wasn't going to be released and then finally like severing ties with this experience and moving forward with the rest of your life? Yeah, well, so the reason why it wasn't released was because we were on an offshoot. We were on Quincy Jones's label. And I love Quincy Jones. He has nothing to do with anything. Like, he, he was an right. amazing, you know, um, person to look up to. But he was on an offshoot of Warner Brothers, his label. And Warner Brothers had um, a new head come in of music. And he um, he shut down Quincy Jones's label. By then, mm. our single and our music video was playing on Disney Channel. Very successful. It was like a top five song. And yeah. So it was like, so Warner Brothers knew that and was like, yeah, we'll, we'll take it. We'll take it and we'll just release it under Warner Brothers. But our management team felt like they could sell it for 
you know, millions of dollars to some other <laughs> record label, which, you know, we were, that was the two, that was year 2000. That was like late year 2000. You know, at that point, 98 degrees was even like fading out. So it was right. like the, the fat, we had missed the fad. Like, yeah. and so how it ended was they sent me home. They sent all of us home. I mean, everyone else lived in California, but they sent me back to like <laughs> Vancouver and they were like, we're going to call you when we get a new album. We're going to shop. We're going to call you when we get a new album. And that call never came. And I've never heard from that management team again. And I've be- I've heard from some of the members, but like we never had closure. It just literally was wow. we were sent home. So like I'm still waiting for the call. It could happen. I'm still in this band. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> but so it was never like it was never like, oh, I can move on now. Like for a couple of years after yeah. that, it really was like, do I, you know, like what do I do now? And so it really was this moment of um, but I will say uh, there are many stories before even the the song came out that I knew it wasn't going to work like instinctively. And now I've really as a human tapped into that side of me that I like, I know instinctively when things work and don't work, but there were a lot of moments during that band where I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. And so when that happened, I, I felt like I knew this was never going to get there. I knew it was never going to become a thing. Um, So when I went back to Vancouver, it was this reckoning because I one of the first things I did was I came out of the closet. Like I said, it then meant that I was not going to be a pop star and I was never going to because it I in a way I was burning the bridge with the boy band because I knew that right. now that I was out of the closet, I couldn't be in the boy band anyways. Um, right. So then I didn't know what to do because I was 18 years old and everybody who's 18 years old is now going to college and figuring out what they wanted to do with their lives. But I was 18 and I had had my career and I was a failure. And not only that, I mean, there's other parts of it where like, you know, music, I'm sure you talk about it all the time, but music label contracts are so terrible. And I spent three years with a major label and came out in debt I was in debt. Jeez. I was all of the money was being funneled somewhere else and and they and it's all legal. <laughs> all of it's legal. Like I could right. never sue anyone because like they legally took all this money because the music industry is so poorly set up even for minors, right. even for, you know, someone as young as 15 and 12. Like so I had to go back to Vancouver and I got a job like at a clothing store and I was like but our music video was still being played so I would get recognized while I was like mopping the floor and people would be like hey you're the guy from the boy band and I'm like yeah I'm poor yeah (laughs) yeah I don't come from a rich family nope I am now working folding I'm living back with my mom yep this is this is my life now they're like I love that song you know and it's like so it was it was a really hard transition I spent like a year or two really not knowing what life is Um, And what my life could be because I really felt like, yeah, I had given up on everything. I'd given up on everything by coming out of the closet. Um, So, yeah, I'm trying to think of more boy band stories before we move on because I know we're going to move on to the next part. Right. I guess maybe something that I would – here's something. I would really like your perspective on what was it like shooting the music video? for Jasmine and then what was it like seeing it on Disney Channel for the first time um so filming the video was uh 
big. I mean, we sh- we shut down parts of Washington Square Park in New York, so it was like right. they spent a lot of money on that music video. Um, I had to toss a bo- basketball, as if you've ever seen the music video. I tossed a basketball, yep. and like before that, I was like killing it and the director was like you're so good and like and then i had to toss that basketball and like everyone was like you suck you should not be doing this and i'm like i never said i could toss a fucking basketball like what the hell um but you know i sat on a bench and i flirted with a girl so all of it felt inauthentic and like ridiculous and um but then when the music video came out i would say and this is the thing like there were a lot of moments where I I realized it wasn't going to work. And like, so one of the, uh, just rewinding to go back, like the year 2000, the 1999 to 2000, big, Y2K, millennium. Yeah. We were actually supposed to perform at um, the CBS's like president's uh, New Year's celebration. We were supposed to be perform on CBS, I think it was like the Lincoln Memorial or something, right before the New Year's. It was going to be massive, and it was going to be for this massive audience. And that was the moment where I was like, well, maybe this is going to work. Maybe this is going to be great. So we, yeah. we went to rehearsal, and it, we were terrible. Like I said, we were terrible <laughs> all the time. <laughs> um, we went to rehearsal. It didn't work. and then But we were still going to do it. And then they fit, like, um, so it was about our time to perform we had our costumes on they gave us our microphones and we walked into the wings and we're like here's here is going to happen and then they cut us from the show like they cut us in the wings with microphones in our hands holy shit <laughs> because like... they thought yeah like they said it was because we were going overtime and I kind of believe that because even if they were going to cut us because we were terrible, like they wouldn't let us get into the wings. They would have cut us before oh. the show. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, but after that, like that was how we rung in the New Year's was like literally being brought back to hotel after like being cut from a show. And like and that, I think, was the, the moment where I was like, this really isn't going to work, is it? And then after that, we filmed the music video. And then when the music video came out, we were on tour um, and even our tours like progressively got worse. Like our first was our like Tommy Hilfiger sponsored. We would like stay in nice hotels and we'd be in like, we'd go to malls and the malls would be packed. Then it was like middle schools and we'd be like in a, a van driving around for like five, six hours <laughs> to the next thing. And we were staying in like motels. And then like when Jasmine came out, it was like we were doing another, I think it was a mall tour, but we would get like, to like Schenectady on, on a Wednesday at nine in the morning. Like, so no one would be like, none of Just it. Just the old sense. ladies. Yeah. Being like, Oh, turn that down. Like um, <laughs> it, everything progressively got worse as the years went yeah. on. And so when Jasmine, the video came out, I just remember we went like to a TGIF and we were like, our manager was like, can you turn on the Disney channel? And we were watching it in this empty TGIF, like on this like TV and it was like not that special like none of it mm-hmm. was special none of it yeah so it was like it was really like hyping to get into the band then like potentially like things working out like especially once we stopped working with the first producer cuz then we would we were rehearse, we were recording with some of the biggest names after that right. and that was really exciting for me because 
Uh, and that's really how I started writing music more was because I was watching these amazing producers and I learned how to write music because of that experience. So every yeah. experience is important is what I'm saying. So like yeah. I am where I am because of that as a musician, but then as the, as we were getting closer and closer to our launch date and all of these things started getting worse and worse and we were cut from that show and we were, you know, like we, we screwed up some other shows and then the, the music video came out and then everything just, it just like went downhill. There was no final ending. There was no big blow up. There was no nothing. It just was like, um, yeah. it was not cathartic, you know, and we, yeah. we want things to be cathartic because we believe in Hollywood and we believe in like, you know, like, but really it just tapered off and I was sent home. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And that, that getting cut from the show last minute, I, I feel like is kind of the perfect metaphor for everything you've said about youth asylum is like, you do all the work, you get there and it's like, nope, nope, no thanks. Go home. Bye. I mean, and this is like one of those things where I've learned because I think we have this feeling as artists and I think everyone like of the thing, of the goal, of the dream right. of the, and you achieve it. And in that, that was the first moment where I was like, that's not a thing. That's not a real thing because um, life is a journey. So it's like, even yeah. if I was to become, you know, Chris Kirkpatrick and, and NSYNC, right. you know, you have your moment and then what? Your life still right. keeps going. And so at, there's been many times in my life where I'm like, this is the thing, you know, like I'm on a TV show. I'm like, this is the thing. And then it's like, it's on Apple TV and not very many people are watching it. Maybe I don't, I don't really know like the numbers cause like, sure. Um, but, but it is kind of just, you have to just know that it's a journey. But back then it really was like looking at these pop icons and being like, well, I want that. I don't know right. why I want that. Um, right. because I, now I'm like, I don't really want to, I don't want fame. I'm definitely an anonymous type of person. Like I, right. like, I like, I like to go to the grocery store and not be known, you know? Right. But, um, but, but that, but moment, I love, yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say what you're talking about, about life being a journey is so true. I heard recently and I think, and this was very helpful for me and very cathartic to think about is that someone said that every, every job you have is giving you a skill you didn't previously have, which is setting you up for success for the next thing. And it might be a terrible job and it might be a terrible situation. And the takeaway might be never put myself in this position again, but you're still learning something that you're adding to your skill set, which is going to inform something and a, something you do later and a decision you make later. And I love that you were talking about you know, this situation, as awful as it was, you got to learn from some of the most amazing producers, got to get inspired on writing more. And that's what's kind of helped inform that aspect of your life and your career since then. And obviously it's grown and changed as well, but that's kind of to your point where you were saying where it started kicking off. And that's, I think that's what we really have to take away is sometimes life isn't Hollywood. Sometimes life is, or, or, it, or it is a little too much Hollywood, you know, I guess maybe depending on your perspective and but it's not going to be this magical, amazing thing that we want it to be. Um, not everybody, <laughs> to keep going back there, not everybody's in sync, right? Not everybody's going to be uh, top of the pops or top of the world. And and that's okay. And we have our life and we have our situations and they're good and they're bad. But we take what we need from it so that way we can 
think think it for its time and then move forward and and move with those skill sets into the next thing but also importantly like and i've not listened to the chris kirkpatrick podcast yet but like what happens after nsync and so i often think about that like if youth asylum had become nsync like what was the longevity of that? Because first of all, most boy bands do not last that long, you know, at the top. Right. And then like, and maybe that's great because you get, you don't get the money. Like, I, I don't know about, like NSYNC maybe got the money, but like, I don't know if I would have gotten the money because I was in debt after three years. Like, right. was it, would it have been enough to like uh, survive for the rest of my life money-wise? I don't know. Um, but right. But I wouldn't be where I am today if I had had if youth asylum had been successful i don't think so um so in a way it is a blessing that it didn't work because i don't think i would yeah i don't think i would have pursued other things um and have had a certain fire under me um and an outspokenness had i had that succeeded because then it would have proved that they were right that i should be in the closet that i should you know like not rehearse that that we should be mediocre you know what i mean and that we would just succeed because we were some boy band and it didn't matter who we were because as long as you know we were on the disney channel we would have been successful like it's good in a way that it proved to me that my instincts are right sometimes you know yeah absolutely well you're listening to after the encore we'll be right back with more kevin yee after this And always accepting me Your gay son Your gay son Your gay son Gay son Now I know when I'm feeling low You always know what to do Mom, you know just what to do And you drag me out the house We head to the mall And you buy me some Welcome back to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I'm here with Kevin Yee. And now we're going to dig into uh, your career post-boy band. And I'm I'm really excited because I, I know that you've been on Broadway. Uh, that's kind of an understatement. You were in the original cast for Mary Poppins. Is that correct? Correct. So you've dabbled quite a bit in a a bunch of different productions on Broadway, and you're also currently in, or you can currently be seen on Apple TV Plus, if I'm remembering correctly, right? And so I want you to walk us through your career post-Youth Asylum. You're 18, everybody's going to college, trying to figure things out. How do you get from that situation to Broadway? I imagine there's a lot of steps in between, so... Yeah, I mean, I did musicals as a kid, but I never thought of it as a career. Um, Vancouver's not a very theater town, so it it was never it was more for fun. It wasn't like really, yeah. I never thought about Broadway. I didn't know a lot about it. But I go back to Vancouver. I start dancing again, um, not ballet, but I start going to this like drop-in dance center, and I'm like doing jazz and hip hop and all these things, and I'm still singing. Like there is a part of me, as much as I gave up on the pop star 
life I was writing music so like I'm writing music and I'm like doing all these things trying to move on um and then in bank in Toronto the other side of Canada is more of a theater town so we have we have the Stratford Festival um the Shaw Festival they're both like nine month contracts um it's our Canadian Broadway we also have a lot of like Broadway shows that do like sit down productions in Toronto so one of them at that time was Lion King and the other was Mamma Mia and so I actually they come to Vancouver to audition like once a year or whatever I auditioned for Lion King not knowing anything really about theater in general being like oh yeah I'm gonna get the lead role in Lion King (laughs) Um, uh, and uh, they like me so they actually call me back a couple times and then I think what happened was they then were like, we're we're also auditioning for Mamma Mia. We auditioned for both at the same time because it's the same casting director. Would you want to audition for that? And I knew nothing about Mamma Mia. Um, I did not know. I, I knew about the ABBA. So I thought, well, I'm not going to get this because I'm not Swedish. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know yeah. what this musical is about. And then um, so I go audition I, for the tour. I don't get the tour. They call me back a few months later. I go in an audition and it's for the Toronto sit down and I do get the Toronto sit down. Um, And then I actually see the show and I'm like, oh, it's not about (laughs) Swedish people at all. It's about a Greek island. It's about, you know, fun and singing and who's the dad kind of thing. Yeah. So I get in, I stay in that show for three years. We do two years in Toronto. Well, three years in Toronto, basically, but SARS also happened during that time too. So we got sent to Vancouver for the summer. So it's, it was kind of a tour from then, like, again, like, you know, the job ends, the show closes and I'm in Toronto. Toronto is a very, um, insular town. Like they don't, the local theater is just not going to consider me because I'm an outsider. Um, so I have a hard time for a year. Again, I'm like folding clothes and people are like, weren't you in Mamma Mia? I saw you. Cause I just did three. So like everyone in Toronto had seen me and I'm like at the gap, like, yep, this is my life. <laughs> uh, we never make enough money. To do- <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> and then from there I was like, uh, I mean, there's so much to this story, but basically, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to then go to Broadway and I was like, I I'm capable of doing this so I decide I'm just gonna go to New York and audition until I get a role and Mary Poppins was one of the things that I auditioned for and it didn't take me very long Mary Poppins was also something the casting director refused to see me in Toronto Um, they had come to Toronto and they would not give me an audition through my agent so I just went to an open call in New York thinking, well, they didn't want to see me in, in Toronto, so they're probably not going to give me this job. And then it was just like every audition was like, yeah, I, I knew it like instinctively that I was going to get this job because they were just looking at me like in a very certain way. And right. then, um, yeah, then I got Broadway and I was there for a year and a half. I again, like because I didn't. I am a musical theater person, but like, I didn't know a lot about musical theater. Like I didn't have favorites shows or anything. Like I couldn't say like what the career was. I just knew that I wanted to get on Broadway and I got on Broadway. And now I was like, well, what else would you want to do? And the, the one other show that I really loved was wicked. 
And so I'm yeah. like, I'm just going to audition for Wicked. And so it actually took me like a good like two years to get into of auditioning to get into Wicked. But finally, they gave me a job in the Chicago company. And so I left Mary Poppins to do the Chicago company. The Chicago company turned into a tour. And so I was away from New York or Vancouver or home in general for like three years straight. Wow. And then I really didn't want to be on tour anymore. And I was the understudy for Bach, which is like, I don't know if you know the musical, but yep. he's, he's kind of a smaller part. Um, but in theater, like you don't get promoted in the way that you would in an office. It doesn't matter how hard you work or how loyal you are. And I, so they never promoted me. And then I would be like, well, can I at least go back to New York and do the New York company so I can, you know, not be on tour? <laughs> Cause we were right. like on, you know, I lived in a hotel for three years straight. Um, and they wouldn't do that. So then I eventually, the person that replaced me in Mary Poppins was leaving and I was like, can I come back? <laughs> and they were like, yes, your costumes still fit you. So, um, I went back to Mary Poppins and I was there for a year and a half. And then I got, um, I was starting to slow down cause physically, like I said, it's very exhausting to do eight shows a week yeah. for years on end plus touring it just is, it's a dream. And so it's like, it's weird to talk about it in a negative way, but it's really taxing on your body. And I physically am still in pain. <laughs> like I still wake up sore every day, um, even though I've not done a show in like seven years or something. Um, sure. But my theater career ended when um, Stratford Festival, which is a festival in Canada, asked me if I would be in one of their shows. And they, it was the role of Linus in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I said, yeah, because I feel like this, I was in a place where I was like, I think I need to move on from theater because physically I'm tired. And like, I think I've done everything that I wanted to do. Like I did right. Wicked, I made my Broadway debut, you know. And then also with Mary Poppins, with the Broadway debut, I did everything. I did the Tonys, I did the, you know, Macy's Day Parade. Like I would always say yes, because I was like, it was such it was so crazy to put up this huge Broadway show that I kind of felt like I didn't want to do it again. So I was like, just take all advantage of all of all of it now. Um, so when they offered me Linus, I was like, well, I've not played a lead role. So like, maybe it's that, maybe that's what will fulfill me. And it wasn't, I just was like, I got there and I was like, it's still exhausting. It's still like, it's not right for me anymore. It was right for me at a moment in my life. Um, but I'm at a different age and I just don't see a future for me. And we could go into that forever because it's also like Asian representation on Broadway is very minimal. We're treated right. very poorly. Like, it, you know, you're either the chorus boy, you know, um, but you're never the lead. Very rarely are you the lead. Um, and so there isn't really growth. There's definitely a ceiling to what an Asian performer can do on Broadway. And I felt like I had gotten there. So I was like, yeah. how else can I tell my story or else how else can I have my voice? Um, so after Stratford, I was like, I think it's time to kind of move on from theater. But I guess like, I, I don't know if this was the question, but I'm going <laughs> to keep talking. Um, <laughs> no, it's good. But um, after the boy band, I had continued writing music. And then I'd even released a solo album <laughs> just by myself. And they're all in my mother's basement, like a thousand CDs. Um, and then 
but I continued writing and then what happened was YouTube happened and I was an early adopter of just like making silly music videos and like little skits and then like um, and I would teach I taught myself everything like how to edit how to like write songs and produce songs and like um, and uh, then it became like yeah sketches and then web series and so during this time that I was on Broadway I was inadvertently doing like my 10,000 hours of writing and so when the when my theater career came to an end I like was like what am I gonna do oh wait I have like all these scripts all of these songs like and yeah. I you can do something with this so then it became I'm going to start um, first it was I'm gonna do comedy because I had a manager I, I was connected with this manager who did the college circuit um, for comedians when comedians come to colleges and so I put to, she signed me before I even had a show I just had a bunch of songs and I was like okay <laughs> so over the past like you know it's been a while since my last college, obviously, because there's a pandemic, too. But um, right. <laughs> but um, I basically put the show together and I became a really strong, like, um, improviser <laughs> because colleges are terrible to perform at because you never know where you're going to perform. Like, you can't have a you have to be open to anything because, like, you would you you could play a full theater uh, with amazing sound and amazing lights or you could play like um, a garbage can by the garbage can like at like 11 in the morning you know like right. I did one of my favorite one of my last show, college shows and it was my favorite I still have pictures of it too is like first of all they forgot I was coming so I get there and then nice. they're like oh oh right <laughs> they're like oh we forgot we forgot to tell everyone um but it was like it was a noon show at this college in South Dakota and it was, it was such a small local college that they only had one common area. And that common area was used for studying and it was also used for eating. And so I was there at lunch, but they put me right in front of the microwave. And so nobody wanted me there because they were all trying to study and eat. But I just performed in front of the microwave while people were trying to warm up their food. And I have all these pictures of it. <laughs> but it was amazing because I've I'm I I feel like that journey is actually what got me to figuring out who I was and like yeah and also like what my story was and what my authentic voice was because I had to put together this show um and I went through many incar reincarnations of like at first I was really flamboyant on stage and a lot of my stuff was like really gay. And then, and then it kind of evened out like a little bit where I, I feel like I'm not necessarily that extreme anymore. Um, so, but colleges, you know, are its own thing. And I would say f for a couple of reasons, I never really became huge in the college industry, um, which is fine um, because now I think it is about, writing so writing my own stuff and like now i'm more tv centered in this moment sure <laughs> yeah so um, so getting through because you also had there's two last things i want to really kind of touch on in your career but i but i think the theme that i'm getting from this is and this is what we kind of touched on in the last segment is that each of these different experiences you have, whether boy band, Broadway, um, this like comedy show through the colleges, each of these are giving you 
tools and pieces that you're then folding into the next thing that you're doing um, performance-wise. Um, and so I'd re I really love this, this idea of that I'm going to take whatever is thrown at me, good, bad, or indifferent, and then just fold it into the next thing, which is going to take me to the next chapter of my life. And that I think is so incredible. I absolutely love it. And I want you to, to walk us through and talk through about your um, stand-up special that was on Hulu a couple years ago and also what it was like to get on um, that Apple TV Plus show. And I'm the, the title of the show is escaping me at this point. Um, <laughs> it escapes everyone, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, go ahead. What is the name of the show? Um, it's Dickinson. It's about Emily Dickinson, the poet. That's right. So it's um, it's like a, it's not a modern day retelling because it we it is actually a period piece, but um, but the it's it's modern day speak. Like our language is modern, and we, you know, there there'll be a, a Beyonce song, <laughs> and like Wiz Khalifa's in it. Like it's kind of like <laughs> this random world, but um, it is technically a period piece about I Emily gotcha. Dickinson. <laughs> So what was it like getting getting the comedy special? What was it like getting on the show, the Apple TV Plus show, Dickinson, and then um, and then to put a fine point on it as we round the round the bases for the end of this episode? Where do you see your career going next? So those those three points. Yeah, well, I would say the the Hulu special was very emotional for me because it was my I feel like it was my moment um, as a pop star because I have uh, because m my special was comedy songs um, and and stand up as well but I was singing on a stage and so it did feel like a very um, cathartic moment for me where I could stand yeah. on the stage and be like and sing and yeah. so in a way that is my boy band shining moment. Sure. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember. I just remember feeling very emotional when it was done. Um, yeah. Because also because I think a lot of my struggle has been not knowing who I am. Sure. Because I am in this, this amalgamation of many things of that people have told me I am. And also hiding so much, um, and um, and and also always feeling like an outsider, no matter what. So even as a comedian, like I'm a musical comedian, and the comedy world doesn't like anything that's not standing on a stage and talking. <laughs> like they don't right. like <laughs> they don't like you know um, sketch characters. They don't like they want you to stand on the stage. And so I was never enveloped into a community with the comedy community. Um, so what I've always known about myself is that I have to make it for myself. Um, yeah. And so with that moment, I was like, I really made this moment happen. And it was like, it was <laughs> breaks on like skid, skids all on the road. Like it, like no one was, it was, it was painful. It was pooping out. It was constipation. <laughs> like it was yeah. not easy to get to that moment. Even, even the songs, even the material, because like I said, when I started, I thought I was one thing, but as the time went on, I realized it wasn't that thing. 
So it really was an artistic journey to get that comedy special out. And it's sad that it's, you know, another thing where I'm like, it's the journey because it didn't do well and it only lasted on Hulu one year and it wasn't renewed um, because no one really watched it, but also no one really promoted it because it wasn't a Hulu original. So it was kind of like one of those difficult moments. But it was a part of an Asian American stand up special. So there were six of us and that I was really um, proud of that I could yeah. stand with my like my peeps <laughs> and, yeah. and all of us were weird and all of us were different. And one of them was even Christian. That's his thing. <laughs> He's a Christian comedian, <laughs> Asian comedian. Um, but um, but that we made it on to that platform. It just unfortunately, like the appetite still isn't there. So, you know, we're working on it. Um, the Apple TV show is um, I I. <laughs> I have a lot of my main thing is that like it was one of those moments where I was like I think this is going to really be that moment this is going to be that CBS like millennium moment right um, I just don't know if it's doing that well because Apple TV yeah. is not talked about that often and you'll see shows like um, like when Sex Education came out on Netflix like those those actors that were unknown became instantly known and right. I'm not saying that, like, like I said earlier, I'm not looking for fame, but I look at kind of even the Instagram counts of like my my castmates and I'm like, I don't know if it's like making that impact that and I and I think maybe all the Apple shows are not there yet. Like there's just not a viewership yet. Right. Um, but it's helped me in other ways, for sure. It, it helps to be on any show, really. Yeah. Um, and um, uh I, I don't really know what else to say about it. You know, we, we have filmed a second season um, before the um, pandemic happened. So that should be coming out soon. I went from four episodes in the first season to eight episodes in the second season. So okay. um, there is more. I just don't know if there is going to be a viewership that like in the second season too, but they are talking right. about a third season. Um but, you know, like Schitt's Creek, for instance, no one watched Schitt's Creek until the fifth season <laughs> or the sixth yeah. season. So it's like you never know with streamers. Um, I just know it didn't do. Apple is not Netflix yet. Right. So right. Um, it does feel a little bit like, uh, OK, back to the drawing board. Like, I thought this was going to be the thing, but it's not, <laughs> not necessarily the thing. Um, right. And that's OK. Um, it's helped me survive. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's paid my it's it's paid my grocery bills. Um. What I really what I really love, and I think this is something that we've we've touched on throughout this entire episode, has been some things that we think are gonna are gonna be the thing that are gonna set us up for you know to feel secure and to be taken care of financially, just well being, so we can focus on different art, like whatever it is. There are multiple situations where it's been like, I think this is going to be the thing. And it's been the thing to get you to the next thing, but it's rarely been the quote unquote thing. But what I do love is you've also couched those moment those moments where the thing hasn't been the thing. You've also kind of added, but I'm over here creating spaces for myself that didn't pr previously exist. And I'm recognizing that I'm going to try and get the thing because that's helpful, 
but also I'm over here carving out space for myself and the fellow people that identify exactly with me and my shared experiences and everything um, with representation. Because there is a startingly, starty, oh, easy for me to say, start, you know what, there's a huge lack. I just, uh, it's late and, and I'm parched, but, but there is a staggering, there we go, staggering lack of diversity representation within media and within a lot of these avenues and ventures. And to your point about Asian representation as well, there is a significant lack of that. And so to have someone like you who is extremely talented, carving out spaces for yourself and for others will go a long way. And I think when all is said and done, just my two cents, I think this is going to end up being your legacy is that you are creating these spaces that didn't exist. And you're able to contribute to a larger movement of these roles and these perspectives didn't exist. We are making them exist. And we are proving that there's an appetite for them and that people want it. It's just people don't know what they want unless they see what they want. Gave it just like, you can't say oh, people don't want a movie like Crazy Rich Asians, for example, because people have never been given the option to consume a movie such as Crazy Rich Asians, right? And I'm just using that as an example. And then you present it and it does phenomenally well because there is an audience for that. People do want that. I mean, it's just, you can't, you can't point, you meaning the, the industry, can't point to people don't want this so we're not going to make it when you haven't given people the opportunity to consume it in the first place and you haven't marketed it and you haven't put it in front of people and you're not putting the dollars behind that project that you are behind other projects. Exactly. And, and, and this is, you know, to answer your third question is like, where do I see myself? It's like, I think we're at a moment that's very different than any other moment I've lived through. And I have, you know, I was six years old when I had my first job and now I'm at, I've never seen societal change in the way, even in Hollywood that is happening now and in the past, like two, three years. Um, you know, when I was six, my first agent took me on because he said diversity is in and like, right. and you did air quotes there. <laughs> yeah. That, yes. Because it's like interesting because he probably believed that. And that's what I'm saying about, you know, you know, them saying that I can't be gay as a pop star. They probably right. believe that because there was like, you know, the Asian takeout guy or that, you know, and that is yeah. diversity to these people. But there is actually starting to be a bit of a societal shift. And we're seeing that a lot of the reason why we haven't seen more diverse story is systemic racism. It's not that we didn't exist. I have been here since I was six years old, but the system is rigged against queer people and people of color. And so that's really my answer to like how I'm trying to move forward is I'm trying to really acknowledge that and hold people accountable because one of the things is we never really ask why, like as performers, because we're always like, we want the job, we're desperate for the job. And like, but I'm at a point now where it, it's actually not beneficial for me to be desperate for a job. It's actually worse because then, you know, that's how people of color get paid less. It's just, we accept whatever. Um, So for me, that's why I now am like saying, I'm a gay Asian writer or whatever, you know, like, because yeah. um, I need them to hear that. One of the theories 
somebody said a couple of people have said this to me even after the black lives matter stuff and all of this discussion because i have um a spec script that a pilot that features me it would be me a gay asian protagonist and my team my management team and my agents have taken it out in a traditional route in a way that they would with you know their white straight male clients um and it's just not working and and so they felt like well it didn't work we're gonna give up and Mm. i'm like why why (laughs) like because why why would you give up because like where are you sending it like are you targeting the thing is a queer person of color is not going to be able to take the same route as other people and especially in Hollywood and so one of the things that they they've said to me is like that because I I brought that up I was like I think you have to target it to like people and and certain streamers that are open to queer and Asian stories or and or Asian stories because not everyone is going to don't bring it to CBS look at CBS. <laughs> CBS is yes. terrible, like shitty stuff. Like um, you should be bringing it to Netflix or whatever and targeting it. And one of the responses was, um, no, any good story can be sold. Mm. And I understand because they felt that way and that's how they've done their business for many years. But if that is true, then you have to believe in the reality that no queer Asian person has ever written a story worth making a TV show from because there has been no gay Asian lead character on any TV show. There's been side characters. There's been, you know, secondary characters, but there's no gay Asian centric story. The reason why is because of systemic racism. And so we have to say it now. We can't be silent anymore and we can't be like you know like just taking whatever anymore because if because the system is the problem it's not personal it and that's the other thing too is i'm like i don't take this personally from any of the companies that turn me down or anybody that says this to me because i'm like it's systemic it's not personal you know um but for me moving forward so um i also just wrote for a new netflix show that's coming out um, it hasn't filmed because there's a pandemic, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I didn't know what I would feel like as a writer because you aren't in front of the camera. Um, and I I will have to say that I really enjoyed the experience because I think it was a contributing to telling stories in a different way. It's a show about an Asian American family, which is like very rarely seen on TV. Um, it's a drama too. So then that's never been seen really. Um, so I think moving forward, that is my thought. It's like very, it's asking the questions. Why it's asking like, why, why would you not want an Asian story or a queer story? Like you say, you put the black square on your Instagram. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you said, you wanted change. Um, and so, for me it's moving forward is like everything has to be because it has to be at the top of my ability so i'm not like throwing like mediocre work at people but i'm right. i'm challenged i want to challenge the system to create to widen hollywood it's not about um you know just telling gay asian stories even it's saying there's a lot of outsiders that don't get let in 
And like we need to help each other get in and tell these stories because that is how, you know, you change society. Going back to the <laughs> callback to the beginning, it's like um, we you have we ref as artists reflect society and where society needs to go so we need to take back the power we've been like we've been giving the power to the executives and we've been giving the power to the record labels but the power is the creatives the power is the people who make the work so um so for me it is like i have my you know um, pilot script that I've been sending out. I have a movie, a short film that I directed that has um, played at Outfest and where are you? Texas. No, it's never Texas, played yes. Texas. It's not, play, it's not played Texas, but um, it's played a lot of the gay film festivals. So um, visibility, visibility, visibility. Like that has been my key thing over the past few years of just being like, say it, say it, <laughs> say it and yes. be present because Everyone is claiming that you don't exist. Everyone is going like, we didn't know there were Asian people that were talented. We didn't know. And it's like, I am an example of somebody who has been in this career since I was six. And you can't yeah. say that you need to even train me because I've been like on Broadway for 10 years. I was in a recording contract for three years. It's like we're, we exist and it's just, yeah. I have to be heard now. So definitely. I absolutely love that. That's a perfect place to end it. But I do want to say, Kevin, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm on the other stuff, but yeah, I update Instagram the most. It's just my handle is kevinyee.com. You have to spell perfect. the .com. D-O-T-C-O-M. D-O-T-C-O-M. Yeah. Well, perfect. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. Nice you're meeting. You're welcome. You're Thank you. You're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and here to play us out one last time is Kevin Yee. I got to your house a quarter past eight, and I guess I got there a quarter too late. I knew that things were not okay when your car wasn't in the driveway. Your daddy answered the door Told me you were out with some dirty whore My worst nightmare had come true I was dating a cheating fool Well, I was all dressed up with nowhere to go You had left me feeling low No one around but your daddy So I thought that I'd let you know I fucked your dad I fucked your dad, yeah, I fucked your dad I fucked your dad I fucked your dad, hope it makes you sad I fucked your dad Your dad. I fucked your dad, that's what I said I fucked your dad, I fucked him good right in your bed I fucked your dad, you cheated on me, fair is fair I fucked your dad, we even fucked on top of your teddy bear I fucked your dad, I fucked your dad, do you hear me? I fucked your dad, that's what you get if you fuck with me I fucked your dad, you didn't think I'd get you back I fucked your dad, when I was slipping on your daddy's side I fucked your dad, I fucked your dad
fucked your dad, I enjoyed the view I fucked your dad to get back at you You cheat on me, then I'll be leaving But first I'll be getting even Slap, slap on my face, slap, slap on my thighs Slap, slap on my chin, squirt, squirt in my eyes You broke my heart and you made me cry But my night got better to my surprise We were all greased up and having fun Didn't hear the footsteps come I was thrusting hard inside of him When your mama walked right in so I fucked your mom, she joined right in. I fucked your mom, she had fun and was a win. I fucked your mom, she got the shirt and with me clean. I fucked your mom, she loved how I made your daddy scream. I fucked your dad, I fucked your dad, yeah, I fucked your dad. And then your mom, I fucked your dad, yeah, I fucked your dad. I fucked your mom, I fucked your dad. Right up the bar, I fucked your dad, yeah, I fucked your dad. This podcast is powered by Roberts Media Group, your resource for podcast development. For more programming and advertising opportunities, please visit us at robertsmediagroup.co.